Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5, starting with verse 18, and we'll read through chapter 6 to verse 11. Romans 5.18. Let's pray before we read the word of God. Father, we have a simple prayer. David prayed it in Psalm 119. Lord, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from thy law. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedient, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Certainly not. May it never be, God forbid. How shall we who are dead to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were baptized with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also we should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, these truths are nearly uncomprehensible, Lord. Father, I don't think we can even begin to fathom the depths of this mystery that Paul is writing about. 
that when we receive Christ, we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, whereby we are united with Christ in every aspect of his life, of his death, of his burial, and we are united and, and made one in every aspect of his resurrection, and that is a living reality. Father, I pray that these truths that are so profound, I pray, God, that the Holy Spirit would help us as we work our way through this text this morning to understand the ramifications of the resurrection, that, God, that we can participate right now in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that this is a living reality for those who have placed their faith in Christ. Oh, Father, thank you so much for your unspeakable love. Lord, we ask your blessing now. Help me, Father, to hide behind the cross so that my flesh and my old man is dead. And I allow the new life of Christ to work through me to present your truth to your people this morning. Thank you for this privilege in Jesus' name. Amen. Our children, you can be seated. Um, children, we have a children's hour for you. So if you want to go to the next room, we have something prepared for you. I was truly blessed this morning in all of the worship and all that... Um, went on behind the scenes this morning as I looked at the decorations, the flowers, um, the ladies and men who were here yesterday, the men who got here early, bringing juice, crepes, eggs, you name it. What a blessing just to watch God's people work together um, to be a blessing to one another. Um, all except for the guy who had the offering baskets. I don't know where he hit them. But we got through that. <laughs> um, the resurrection. It's a topic that you could preach from so many different aspects. And I don't want to do an apologetic on the resurrection, although I do want to go through just some, some basic defenses for the resurrection of Jesus. Um, it's amazing that critical scholarship has changed over the last 25 years. Uh, when I was in divinity school, we used to spend a lot of time trying to debunk higher criticism, especially of the Old Testament. There was a, a theory called the Wellhausen view of the Old Testament that, that really uh, demasculated the Bible and, and took all of its power. And, and liberals were, were chomping at the bit just to, to destroy any credibility in the biblical text. And the same was true of the resurrection. And today, liberal scholarship has, has swung, and it's because of the evidence that we keep unearthing in archaeology and just what we know about the credibility of the biblical text. Mark's gospel is probably the oldest gospel, the, the first gospel that was written, and critics would deny that. And in the last decade, a manuscript of the Gospel of Mark was unearthed in Egypt. And the last part of Mark's Gospel has always been attacked. 
And yet this little fragment, this manuscript, affirmed the account that the women were there early on the first Sunday morning and that the angels were there and that they said, He is not here. He has risen just as he said. The date of that manuscript has been dated at 80 A.D. That's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy that's found its way from Rome to Egypt. And if it's a copy of a copy of a copy, that means Mark wrote his gospel around 40 A.D. That pushes scholarship that has to concede that the resurrection story is not a myth. This is historical reality. Myths take hundreds and hundreds of years to develop. And we know that within six years or seven years within the crucifixion, that it was already documented and spreading over the entire Roman Empire. Another bit of scholarship that was found, and that is the way that Aramaic creeds were written. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is in the form of an Aramaic creed. And Paul is writing to the Corinthians in 55 A.D. Paul was in the city of Corinth in 52 A.D. Now, how do we know that? Again, archaeology has done much to substantiate what we know is already true in this book. We don't need to find archaeological evidence to prove the Bible, but it's nice when we say yes in fact, Paul was in the city of, the city of Corinth in 52 A.D. How do we know that? Because Paul mentions that he was arrested and brought before the judgment seat of Gallio. They have found the Gallio stone in Corinth, and it dates and has the date inscribed that he was there as the proconsul of Achaia in 51 to 52 A.D. So we know that Paul was in the city of Corinth preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ in 51 A.D. He's writing this letter in 55 A.D. And he says, I received of the Lord that which I also delivered to you three years earlier. And he says, I have already received this. And he's quoting a creed here. He says, because it's not Paul's vocabulary, it's in stanza form. And every critic admits that this is an Aramaic creed that dates to about 30 A.D., that Christ died according to the scriptures. That's the, 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 the creed. He was buried. He rose again according to the scripture. And in this you are saved. Now Paul, we can push this back even further. He says that I received this. Well, when did Paul receive this? Well, he went up to Jerusalem in 49 AD. How do we know that? Again, we have discoveries of manuscripts that says that there was a great famine in Jerusalem around 45 AD. There was a decree by a Caesar to expel the Jews from Rome the same year. Claudius Caesar had a decree to expel the Jews out of the city of Rome who were probably Bible-believing Christians. And he finds a couple named Priscilla and Aquila in the city of Corinth. This is right after the Jerusalem Council. So now we know the Jerusalem Council happened right around 49 AD, right before he got to the city of Corinth. Paul is discuss discussing the gospel among the apostles in 49 AD. He had already met them, and we know from the book of Galatians that he had met the apostles 14 years earlier. So do your subtraction. That puts Paul in the city of Jerusalem speaking with the apostles who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection around 
34 AD. This is historical reality. Christ is risen. Now what you do with it, that's up to you. But it is the most life-changing, radical event that will ever happen in your life if you will simply humble yourself and say, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sin and that he was raised again for my justification. I was 17 years old. I was in my bedroom reading through the book of Romans. And I came to Romans chapter 10 and it said, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you will believe in your heart that God has what? Has raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. Our faith has found a resting place. Not in device nor creed. I trust the ever living one. His wounds for me will plead, and they will plead for you. Now, why did we need Christ to come into this world? We live in a broken, sinful, fallen world. And the closer you get to Jesus, the more sinful and broken you see your life. I remember when I first got saved, I thought I was a sinner. And now some 40 years later, I think I can identify with the Apostle Paul So much more when he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God. With my mind, I try to serve Christ, but with my flesh, I serve sin. (laughs) My members. (laughs) And um, lost my train of thought. (laughs) But how did this happen? It was through one man's sin. One man. That's all it took. We've got what is called typology. It's the Greek word of a pattern. And we, get, we use the English word type. And you kids don't use typewriters. <laughs> my wife is thankful that I threw out my typewriter. She had to type my papers in seminary. And I got it at a rummage sale for 50 cents. <laughs> and we used to use whiteout by the bucket. <laughs> Which you, what's that, Tracy? Yes. It was so bad. I was ready to quit seminary after my first year. I had a professor hold up my paper, and it looked like he bled all over it. (laughs) And he says, I don't ever want to see this again. Dr. Goers, it was my spelling. And Ron, yes. (laughs) They they put out something I had up here on the, the, I'm not going to do PowerPoint ever again. (laughs) But it literally bled red ink. And he said, I don't ever want to see a paper like this again. He says, Patrick, will you come up and get your paper? (laughs) But that typewriter, that old typewriter, it would beat onto that paper and leave the mark. And it would represent exactly what that letter was supposed to be, except for on that typewriter, it didn't work very well. And this is the word that Paul uses for Adam. Adam is an exact representation of all that only on the flip-flop. One man's disobedience. One man's righteousness. One man's sin. One man's justification. I don't know what your position is on Jesus. I hope your position is biblical. Not this-ism or that-ism. 
Look cold. Whereas by one man's sin, who became sinners? All of us. By one man's justification, how many people can be justified? All the Greek and the English is indisputable. The adjective all is used without the article in the Greek language, and when it is followed by the noun, you can look this up in Thayer's Greek lexicon, it means every individual. In the same manner that every one of us are tainted by Adam's fall and sin. Every one of us can be assured that Jesus Christ died for you. If the atonement is somehow limited, you have no assurance of salvation other than your performance and your feelings. Because at that moment, when you're not performing, and when you're not feeling it, you may question, am I a part of those who Jesus died for? But my faith does not rest on my feelings, and it does not rest on my performance. It rests on the promise that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So when I'm not feeling it, when I'm not doing that very good that day, I still know that I am part of those that Jesus died for. I know Christ died for me. I know that Christ died for you. And I can go to any lost sinner anywhere and I can look him square in the eye and I can say, Christ loves you and he died for you. Don't let anybody rob you from that or that privilege. And that's found in Romans 5.18. Now because of our sin... God had a plan, and that was to give us the Ten Commandments. And they weren't a plan to get us to heaven. I was talking with Sheila today, and I'll use her if she doesn't mind. She said no. I already used her, so she's going to say, I got to, Pat. <laughs> but we were conversing how she came to know Christ. I love people's testimonies. I, I get emotional. I, I literally... And I, I'm not a Pentecostal, but I literally start to feel hair pricking up on my arm. I do. I, I don't know what it's about. But when she was telling me how she came to know Christ, I could feel the hair on my arm standing up. And this is all she said. She says, Patrick, I thought I was a good person. I was in the, in the LDS church, and I, I did what I was supposed to do. I did all the right things. And then I came to North Valley Bible Church and started talking with the pastor. Then he came to my home one day and he, or after church service and he said, how good are you? And he used the law. And when you use the law on good people, they find out that they are not good people. That we're liars. That we're covetous. We're thieves. We're disobedient to parents. We're unthankful. We're unholy. We're unlike God in almost every way. And when the law begins to penetrate our hearts, sin begins to abound. It just accelerates. Where there is no law, Paul said earlier, 
Sin isn't counted up. It's the Greek word logizo, which means to count, to reckon, which Dennis does when he pushes his pencils and does all the stuff for these tax people. He's logging it up and, and keeping track of it. It doesn't mean we weren't sinners without the law. It just it wasn't being counted up. It wasn't numbered. You couldn't say, well, I did this number of sins, but now I, can, I still can't number my sins. I, I started thinking about this morning. How many lies do I tell in one day? And I'm supposed to be a pastor. I'm supposed to be a preacher of the gospel. And I'm a liar. That's just an open confession. I, little things. Things that you conveniently leave out. Things that you conveniently exaggerate. Or questions that you just sort of don't answer. The law makes our sin abound. And that's why I'm so grateful that where our sin abounds, grace superabounds. Can you imagine trying to please God without Jesus? Christ paid it all. Now Paul goes on to say, and he sees things, you know what, I, I know where you guys are going. I'm gonna, you're going to go down the road of antinomianism, no law, just grace. What shall we say then? Man, if it's grace, I can just live however I want to. I'm going to be forgiven anyway. And Paul begins in verses 6, 1 through 11, why this is impossible. We can't continue the Greek word is epimeno. Meno means to abide or to live in a residence. And epi, the little preposition, means to make your house. It means to live in a habitual state of sin. Chapter 6, verse 1. How shall we then continue, live permanently in a habitual state of sin? That's where he's going with this. How can we possibly do that? And he gives the strongest negative in the Greek language. The old King James says... God forbid. Now, that's not a literal translation, but the King James in 1611 probably thought that's about as strong as you can get. God forbid. Many of our translations say certainly not. Never be. Literal translation. May this never, ever, ever even enter your mind. That's a preposterous thought. To think that a holy God who abhors sin who had his son die in our place to condemn sin on the cross as a, an excuse to continue to live in sin is totally foreign from the Bible. It's totally foreign from God's way of thinking. So he just stops it right there. And then he backs it up with a theological reality. Excuse me, a theological reality. Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin, live, peripatia, walk every single day. How can I just keep walking in it over and over and over and over again with the biblical and theological truth knowing that I died to sin? Now, what does it mean to die to sin? It means to die within reference to what sin does. What does sin It brings condemnation, doesn't it? When Adam sinned in the garden, what did he do? He tried to cover things over. He hid from God. 
and he felt separation from God. I have died with Christ to all those things. My guilt, I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. The condemnation, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And what about the separation? Christ is the propitiation, the payment, the satisfaction for your sin, and not yours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. God was in Christ Jesus, reconciling the world to himself. I am dead in reference to those things. There's one more thing that Paul's going to allude to in this passage, and that is the cruel tyranny of sin. Sin is an awful taskmaster. It will take you where you don't want to go, and when it takes you where you don't want to go, it will keep you there longer than you ever wanted to stay. And you have died to it. Guilt, condemnation, shame, separation, and it's control in my life. And Paul is saying, how could we just live in sin continually? when we are dead to reference to all that sin did when it entered this world. Then he takes it a little deeper in verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Baptism is a picture here of immersion. We weren't sprinkled into Jesus' death. We were dunked. We were immersed. We were totally merged into his death. In other words, everything that Christ experienced on the cross, spiritually and mystically, we participated in that. What did Christ do on the cross when he baptized, when we were baptized into his death? We were baptized into God's justice, weren't we? Into God's righteous judgment of sin. God's payment in full for sin. And we were baptized vicariously in the person of Christ. For one spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. I think it's 12, 11. <laughs> you can check me out later. That's probably wrong. 1 Corinthians somewhere. For by one spirit have we all been baptized into one body, whether Jew or Gentile, whether bond or free, and we've all been made to drink into one spirit. You and I have been immersed into everything that Jesus Christ did in his death. If that is true, how in the world can I live in sin? Sin does not have to control me. This passage, I, I've had the blessedness of meditating on this verse the entire week. And I encourage you and I exhort you to do the same thing. It has radically changed my thinking. Rick, it's been like, it's like been a revival. I know that sin is not my master. I am, I am everything that Christ did on the cross. He has done it for you and I, Rick. And it's, it's life-changing when you and I get a hold of this truth that we've been immersed into everything that Jesus did. Now Paul says, therefore, therefore we are buried with him through death, through baptism into death. And notice the word that. This is our first purpose. That just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, in the exact same way. So if I've been 
baptized into everything that Jesus did, what does that mean? It means my sin's paid for. It means the guilt is passed. It means the condemnation has been paid. It means sin is no longer my control. I participated in that. Paul says there's another implication about the resurrection now. That just as Christ was raised by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. To be alive in Christ is what it means to be born again. You were a dead person and now you are alive in Christ. In the same way we participate in everything that the death of Christ did, we participate fully in everything that Christ triumphed over. He triumphed over sin. He triumphed over death. And we walk in the newness of life. What did God do when he gave us newness of life? He took out a heart of stone and he replaced it with a heart of flesh. He took the law that was written on tablets of stone and he has written it by the Holy Spirit in hearts. He has put a new song in our, on our tongue and a total new way of looking at life. That's what it means to walk in the newness of life. So our total identity has been changed. We are not who we used to be. How can I continue to live in sin? May that never even enter into my mind. I am dead with reference to all that sin had done for me, had done to me. I am alive the same way, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. We find that in the Bible. He raised himself from the dead. God the Father raised him from the dead also. That's a beautiful picture of the Trinity. But that same power resides in God's children. That same glorious power that on Sunday morning knocked the stone out and Jesus came out of that grave alive, that's the power that you and I can live in every day. So we have a new position, a new identity. And verses 5 through 11 we have a new practice. Verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now I want to, to for you to open your Bibles, and I want you to walk through something with me, because we've got a conditional clause followed by a participle. It says, now you know this, and then the logic behind it with the Greek word gar, that doesn't make the English word for, okay? So we're going to look at a conditional clause. This conditional clause is in the mood of reality. Paul is not questioning this in any way. He's using it as hyperbole. He's using this if to grab a hold of their attention. It's an if that means since or because. He's not questioning this. And then he says, we know this. And then he says, for, and then he gives the logic. So just... Follow along with us, with me. In verse 5, it says, for if. And then we get to verse 6, and we've got the participle, knowing this. And then in verse 7, we've got the logic behind it. For he who died. Now let's look at the pattern. It's picked up again in verse 8. The pattern is repeated here. Verse 8. Now if, there's the if clause. 
Look at verse 9. It starts out with a participle. Knowing that. Now look at verse 10. We've got the four to give the logic. I love the way Paul writes. He gets your attention. He says, now you need to know this. And then he says, this is the logical reason for it. And he sums it up with verse 11. Likewise, this is what we can do to make spiritual application. Don't just let this Bible stay in the theory. Don't just let it stay in your intellect. Don't just let it stay in your Bible study. Right, Michael? You've got to apply it, right? After you do your observation, interpretation, application. Right? Amen. Okay. <laughs> He's one of my Bible scholars. So let's do that for right now. Let's see what Paul says in verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the resurrection. This is future tense. He is not just talking about future tense in heaven, although that is definitely true here. You and I are certain to go to heaven. We know we have eternal life because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John chapter 10. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Because I live, you shall also live. He has conquered the grave. We know eternal life because the grave was empty. But he's also talking about the way that we can live tomorrow. And we know that from verse 6. Knowing this. Now what do we need to know about this? That our old man was crucified. What old man is he talking about? He is talking about Adam. The Adam that brought condemnation, that brought shame, that brought guilt, and that had no ability to conquer sin in its own strength. That old person has been. Eris tense. It's a completed act in the past. I never have to go back to Calvary. You don't have to be re-saved. You are saved once and forever, and you are secure in Christ. You have been crucified, that old man. With all of his passions, all of his desires, he's been crucified. You're going to ask me, well, Patrick, how come I still struggle with sin? Well, I'll get that to the end here. Because I think every Christian really wants to know an answer for that. And when we get here, he changes it. He says that the body of sin might be done away. Adam has not been done away with. I still live in this fleshly body. And until I see Jesus, I am going to have struggles the rest of my life. That's the bad news. But there's good news. The good news is that the old man, and I know the old King James says, old man has been destroyed. Katargeo. It's used four times in the book of Romans. This is the fourth time that it's used in the book of Romans. Every time that Paul uses this word, and you can look it up, it's in chapter 3. And I did my word study, and now it's on my notes, and I don't have my notes, so you just have to take my word for it. He uses it twice in chapter 3, once in chapter 4. But every single time that Paul uses this word, 
It means to nullify its effects and to devoid it of its power. It doesn't mean to destroy it and eradicate it. Now, my, my son brought this gadget up here this morning. I stuck it in my pocket. And he said, Patrick, I don't know how this thing works. You know how it works. And I, I said, does it have a battery in it? And he says, I don't know. So I flipped it open, and there was no battery. Now, this little jiggy here, it wasn't destroyed, was it? But without that battery, it was rendered inoperable. It was nullified. It had no efficiency to do what it was designed to do. And that's what Paul is saying here. That old man, his efficiency, his power to control you, his power to condemn you, his power to make you feel shame and guilt has been nullified because I participated in that crucifixion when Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you were baptized into Jesus' death on that cross. Your sin has been paid in full. That's what he's talking about here. Verse 7, he gives the logic. For he who died has been freed from sin. What does it mean to be freed from sin? There's no way we can adequately even translate the Greek language. The Greek word is dekao, which means to declare something righteous. And it doesn't make sense to say that he who has died has been declared righteous from sin. So it's a good translation, but it misses it slightly. The idea is that you and I were under the condemnation of death, right? As sinners. And if someone has died in our place, the judge can look and say, you know what, you had corporal punishment coming your way. The wages of sin is death. You have participated in Christ's death. The idea of freed from sin doesn't mean that I'm never going to be a sinner again. It means that I have been completely acquitted. I no longer stand condemned before my God. And when I come before the Lord in heaven... I'm not going to say, God, look at all the good things that I've done. I want to say, on the cross, you freed me. You acquitted me. I'm not guilty. I'm not condemned. And so Paul says, this is the reason, this is the logic why sin doesn't dominate me any longer. Our last paragraph now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him, for that he died, he died to sin once, hapax, it means once and for all, and now we live unto God. The rest of this passage, it says, verse 10, it says, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. He's living it to God right now. And that's the way we can live our lives because of the resurrection. When you feel tempted 
All you have to do is say, that old man doesn't have the power to control me. How can I even think about practicing that thought? How can I even want to go there? Because his grace is so amazing. His grace transforms me. His grace changes me. It takes me out of death and into his sonship. I've died with reference to all of it. Christ buried all of that. Christ was raised from all of that. Christ continues to live throughout eternity. Therefore, I am alive in Christ to live tomorrow, to live the next hour by the power of Jesus Christ and not by the power of Patrick Cross. Because the minute I do that is the minute I fail. So verse 11, Paul says, likewise. Likewise is going back to the verse before, right? The same way that Jesus died once and for all and forever, you and I participated with that with Jesus on the cross. Sin has no claim on you and I if we put our faith in Jesus. And in the same way that Christ was raised from the dead, now I can live in the newness of life. Likewise, you reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's where it's all found. You and I have been transformed, and our practices can be transformed by the power of Christ. I meditated on this week why I struggle with sin still. And if you get to Romans chapter 7, you'll find the answer to that. And so I just went through and I jotted a few things down. Why do I struggle with sin? Why does a believer still struggle from sin? I think it's because as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we understand sin's power and its influence probably better than anybody else. That sin is not something that I trifle with. It's not something that I flirt with. It's not something that I court with. Sin is something that I flee. Secondly, we understand the destructive force of sin. Sin, it says in James, it starts with lust. It proceeds to actions and it eventually ends in death. Sin destroys relationships. Sin destroys homes. And it destroys our walk with God. And as believers, we know this so well. Third, because I know how sinful I am every single day, that magnifies the grace of God that He would love me when I was his enemy. Grace is so amazing. You cannot exhaust grace. It is an ocean that has no bottom. And as believers, because I continually sin, it humbles me, it brings me to the cross. It makes me appreciate salvation. It makes me want to raise my hand when Samantha and Jordan are up here singing about it being covered. Because I know what it means to be forgiven. 
because I still live in this body trapped with sin. We humbly know that anything good is through the work and power of Christ and not me. We are driven to have a closer walk and complete reliance on Jesus because it's all of faith we keep Christ ever present. John Newton is best known for his hymn, Amazing Grace. But he was a prolific writer of hymns. And I found an obscure poem written by him this week. And I thought, he said it so succinctly. He said, Patrick, you could have just read that poem and sat down. We could have all gone home. <laughs> by various maximums, forms, and rules that pass for wisdom in our schools, I sought my passion to restrain. But all my effort proved in vain. But since my Savior I have known, my rules are reduced to one alone. To keep my Lord by faith in view, this strength supplies and motive to John Newton. Let's bow with prayer.